El Fanboy, Episode 10. just spent three weeks binging two seasons of a series you really adore. And then, just as you're about to watch the season finale that will leave you fully caught up on the series, you check on a whim to see when the next season will start, only to find it's been canceled. Yep. That's what happened to me with Masters of Sex. God damn it. Okay, I've been watching the hell out of that show because I saw the first two seasons back when they originally aired, and then I lost my access to Showtime. I recently got that network back, so I eagerly dove back into the world of William Masters and Virginia Johnson. I was watching it every free moment I could find, i.e. whenever the kids were asleep, the wife wasn't around, and I wasn't playing Zelda Breath of the Wild. And then yesterday, I realized I was about to be fully caught up, so I thought, damn, now I've got to wait just like a common peasant. Let me go see when season five premieres. Then, bam, found out it was canceled. And that, and, and that, and that the season four finale, which I was about to watch, was going to have to serve as a finale for the entire series, and it sucked. Not to give anything away, but... The episode rushed through several major plot lines and ends on a really awkward, sort of strange note and totally leaves certain elements completely hanging. It's like it's like they knew the show was getting the axe, but wanted to leave some stuff open just in case. And now here I am, having invested four seasons of faithful viewership in a series that will never get a proper ending. And this... This right here is why I have a hard time giving myself over to TV series. People are always telling me, you gotta check out this, and you've gotta see that. And I react like a scorned lover. Because too many fucking times have I gotten myself invested in a series only to see it vanish. I remember the first time it happened. It was a series called Sliders that aired on Fox when I was 12 back in 1995. All right, it was one of the first TV series I can recall following on my own. My mom didn't watch it. My dad didn't watch it. I had no siblings. And aside from Lois and Clark, the new Adventures of Superman, it was the first time I ever gave myself a series that I had to be glued to the TV for for an hour every week. Then it got canceled. And thus began my love-hate relationship with TV. Now, fast forward 22 years... And it happened again with Masters of Sex. This is why now I only pick winners. And it sucks. Because it means I have to be a bandwagon fan who watches what all the cool kids are watching. Because at least if the cool kids are watching it, and it's a huge runaway hit, then I know it won't get shit canned. That's why I refuse to watch anything that's in its first or second season, unless it's a huge, obvious hit. My current list of shows reads like a list you'd read in, like, Entertainment Weekly, a list of, like, must-watch series. 
you know, uh, what do I watch? I watch Better Call Saul, The Walking Dead, Homeland, Bates Motel, Game of Thrones, House of Cards, the Marvel Netflix shows, Orange is the New Black, Stranger Things, and American Horror Story. In other words, series that are either not going anywhere anytime soon or are absolutely going to have defined endings. So, rest in peace, Masters of Sex. You may have been the last time I ever invested in a series that wasn't a sure thing, because my heart just can't take it anymore. But anyway, um, aside from Masters of Sexy Time, since we last spoke, I did catch three movies, neither of which is in, you know, none of which is, are, are in theaters, mind you, but see, I don't tend to go to the movies when my wife is on vacation. She's a school teacher, and she just had her spring break, and when she's around... You know, call me a big softie, but I like to be around. So the time I usually leave open for going to the movies, which is like 9.30, 10 o'clock on, on a school night, becomes the time when she and I get on the couch, load up on snacks, partake of the green leaf, and watch our shows. And with the two kitties, she and I don't get the opportunity to get to the movies very much. So most of our movies that we do tend to watch together tends to be stuff that's either like streaming somewhere or on TV. So uh, this, you know, in the last week we saw What We Do in the Shadows, The Witch, and La La Land. So let me tell you, I caught What We Do in the Shadows because of the Thor Ragnarok trailer that I raved about last week. Uh, you know, that film's director, Taika Waititi, is behind what we do in the shadows. He co-wrote it, co-directed it, and starred in it. So, you know, I wanted to see if all the faith I have in him is merited. And you know what? That movie was a grand slam for me. It was hysterical. It was creative. And it was off the fucking wall. It totally confirmed for me that Waititi is exactly the right kind of filmmaker for the MCU. Someone who can take a simple premise and inject it with life, spontaneity, and creativity. So, guys, it's on Netflix, and I suggest you check out What We Do in the Shadows, especially if you're into mockumentaries like I am. I feel like I, I grew up on films in that genre, like Spinal Tap, Waiting for Guffman, and Best in Show. This one's about vampires, and it's awesome. So, um, other than that, you know, quick impression on The Witch. If you haven't seen, uh, was it like a 2015-2016 horror flick from Robert Eggers, who's now working on a remake of Nosferatu? Uh, that shit was haunting, man. I mean, definitely, definitely a little slow, and there's not a lot to it, but like the atmosphere, the tension, and the performances, especially from this like 10-year-old boy who's in there who has a scene that like left my wife and I like, what the fuck just happened? Um, you just make the whole thing feel like you have like a noose slowly being tightened around your neck. And, you know, it, it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. It, it's very dark. And the scary shit that happens tends to involve children being killed. And it's just, uh, it's definitely not for everyone. But the wife and I enjoyed it, even if it made us sneak into our kids' rooms and hug them as they slept. Um, one movie that didn't involve, you know, didn't require us sneaking into the kids' rooms was, uh, La La Land. Wow, man. I mean, what can I say? I, um, I loved this movie. I can totally get why Hollywood loved it too. And I can totally get why non-artist types perhaps didn't. 
You know, it's a movie for dreamers. It's a movie for poets, romantics, and creators. The, the, the cinematography was top tier. The story was simple yet timeless. And the overarching, the overarching message hit me right where I live. You know, the idea that a big, old-fashioned Hollywood romance focuses not on the idea that the boy and the girl have to be together forever, but that the boy and the girl have to love each other, support each other, and help one another achieve their dreams in life, dreams that don't include marriage, kids, and growing old together, was bold as fuck for me. The idea that we all tend to hold personal relationships too preciously and put too much of ourselves into them is fairly groundbreaking when you think about it. So much of what we see in films and TV, what we hear in music, what we read in books is about finding that special someone. And La La Land is like, yes, find that someone. Cherish those fleeting moments of pure bliss while they last. But most importantly, if you truly love that person, help them. Encourage them. Support them to pursue that which makes them happiest, even if it doesn't include you. Because love comes and goes, but dreams are forever. You two will always have those memories. You'll always love each other in some way, shape, or form. But if if you put that person ahead of your dreams, you are destined to resent them one day. And then, should it all come to an end, you'll realize, shit, I put all of myself into that relationship. And somewhere along the way, my dream died. It's just damn, man. I mean, like, La La Land was just beautiful for me. And oddly enough, like thematically, it even tied into, you know, with a Masters of Sex, which I mentioned earlier. You know, one of the big themes of that series towards the end there was this idea of like, I'm not going to ever put myself in the back seat again for someone else. It's not worth it. You know, too often that's when you know, we all we have this idea in our heads that we have to put ourselves second. That if you love someone, you have to just compromise your own your own passion, your own dreams away. And lately I've been seeing these things, you know, between La La Land and Masters of Sex that are just like they're saying the opposite. They're like, yes, love, love with all your heart and give yourself fully. But you still have to remain a priority in your own life. And to me, that sort of stuff is just profound and it's different than all of like the uh, Hallmark card bullshit that we're usually fed from from entertainments in our mass culture. Um, and yeah, while we're on the topic of, you know, speaking of dreams and making them come true, uh, this week I, I dipped my toe back into the world of, of creating art again. Um, I started working on a screenplay. Uh, I was also contacted by an old friend about working on a script with them. And if they're listening, hey, uh, brother, I'm on the case. Once my wife goes back to work tomorrow, I'll be able to send over my detailed notes on the masterpiece we're going to write together. All right. Um, and I also re-edited my first ever movie. All right. Now, this is, you know, this is a little silly, but when I was 12, I got an assignment in my seventh grade English class. Uh, it was October, so, you know, they wanted us to write a scary story. Uh, I had the bright idea of, screw it, screw a scary story. I'll make a scary movie. I have a camcorder. So I got permission from my teacher, Miss Hill, 
And she signed off on it. You know, um, I spoke to her about the general idea and she was like, good, we'll do it. Um, and so my mom and I came up with a brief script and then my dad and I went out and like guerrilla style in one day we shot and edited the whole damn thing. Uh, I shouldn't say we, my dad did. You know, I went to bed at the end of the day and my dad sat there with a little eight millimeter camcorder and a VCR and basically like old school style edited and put together this little 12 minute movie. Um, you know, this is a guy who was like working full time and he didn't have to do this for me, but you know, my dad and I, my parents were divorced and our weekends were very precious to us. And he gave me an entire day of his life just to make this weird little idea of mine come true. And, uh, that'll always mean something to me. But anyway, um, it's called the evil visitation and it's absolutely terrible, but it's become something of like a like a treasured family heirloom that we dust off from time to time to show during holidays. Uh, it's 12 minutes long, like I said. It's not particularly scary at all and hardly makes a lick of sense, but we love it. You know, my dad loves it, and so as a gift to him, I transferred all of the 8mm footage to digital, and I re-edited the movie using Final Cut Pro. Um, I, I will share a link when I post today's episode, and if you have 12 minutes and feel like laughing at 12-year-old me all chubby and nervous and looking at the camera at the worst possible moments and smiling at moments that are supposed to be terrifying and wearing a fucking fanny pack, because I was very bad, I was very asthmatic back then, so I needed to have a fanny pack that had all my inhalers in it. God, I was a nerd. Uh, then I heartily encourage you to check out The Evil Visitation. Remember, it's not good, but it was the first time I ever tried to create something like that, and um, it was a labor of love for my family and I, and a beautiful moment in time between my dad and I. Uh, my dad plays like four characters in the movie, because it's literally just us. Um, but anyway, um, let's get to the week's news. Let's dive into what's going on out there, and, and what's trending, and and see what's up. By the way, I've got a bit of like a, a little rumor, bochinche, to share with you at the end of this. So hang on there. I'm going to make it interesting for you. Uh, last week's question of the week, by the way, it was about Joss Whedon and w w whether or not you guys think he really is going to be making this Batgirl movie. At the time, I pointed out that it had been two weeks, <clears throat> two long weeks. And when you think about it, Two weeks in this industry is a very long time with the amount of stories that go by. So it had been two weeks of utter silence since those reports about Joss Whedon entering the DC Extended Universe with Batgirl. At the time, I said, it looks like it's not going to happen. I think something happened. I'm sure both sides were speaking. Maybe there were serious talks and negotiations going on. But the fact that two weeks had gone on and there had not been a press release or anything official to me, meant it's not fucking happening. And now, by the way, it's been three weeks and still fucking nothing. So I asked you guys, you know, do you guys think I'm on crack or am I onto something that <clears throat> the weed and Batgirl thing I don't think is happening? Um, so here's what you guys had said. Uh, First of all, Aaron Varola agreed with me right off the bat. Aaron Varola is with me on that. So uh, thank you, Aaron, for having my back. You know what I mean, gentlemen? 
Uh, I'm trying to see what he said. All right, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go back and try to find it because I can't find it. You know why? Because Aaron didn't answer with hashtag L fanboy. So I'm having trouble finding his actual response. But um, the rest of you guys who actually did hashtag L fanboy, uh, Mr. Dan Barley said, I think Joss Whedon would make a very refreshing slash fun movie, especially when compared to other existing DC films. So I'm keeping fingers crossed that he will end up making Batgirl, but knowing WB, you might be onto something. Um, <laughs> then there was Tavo Borrego, who said, I believe I'll believe it when I see it. Right now, the WB has zero credibility. I don't know why he sort of became a vampire there at the end. Uh, I suck. And Chris Lasanti said, I hope Wheaton gets to direct Batgirl or any DC movie because I'm excited for good DC movies regardless of the character. So Chris sounds hopeful, but uh, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I'm pretty sure you guys agree with me that it seems awful unlikely at this point that it's happening anytime soon. Um... So, okay, so that was the question of the week. And just to sort of put a button on that, I once again feel that we need to go ahead and say this shit is either not happening or something major is going on behind the scenes. Because I don't know how it's been three weeks since Variety said it was a done deal and neither Warner Brothers nor Joss Whedon has made any sort of statement about directing Batgirl. And now let's go ahead and start this week's stories with the box office, shall we? Now, last week I was speaking to you guys about the fact that the fate of the Furious was looking like it was going to have a fucking monstrous weekend. And how much that really surprises me, because I really thought that F7 did what it did because of the whole Paul Walker curiosity. I was not expecting Fate of the Furious to necessarily match what it did, uh, you know, what F7 did. And Jesus Christ, I was wrong. And I'm fucking questioning everything we know about fandom these days. Because this thing, well, I'll get into what it did, in historically speaking, after I give you this week's top five. So this week's top five was The Fate of the Furious, which made, no, number one was $98.7 million domestically. That is the actual Okay, there was initially some talk that it had actually surpassed a hundred million, but that's not going to be the case. Uh, the actuals have come in; it's a little bit below a hundred mil, but don't feel bad for them, because globally speaking, holy fuck, it it actually it it beat Star Wars. Everybody, it is now the number one all-time global opener. So, all right, number two is the Boss Baby. Uh, which has now been around for three weeks. Uh, and it's hanging in there at number two with a 39% drop with 16 mil. Then there's Beauty and the Beast. It's been neck and neck with Boss Baby ever since, you know, the, pretty much the whole time. Beauty and the Beast has been out for five weeks, by the way. And it made 13.7 mil. Then there was Smurfs The Lost Village, which, you know, took a, like a 50% dip in its second week for a 6.7 mil haul. And then there's going in style, which took a 47% drop. And now, you know, that $25 million movie 
now currently stands at a worldwide QM of 35 mil. It's going to be a little modest hit, like I said. It's probably going to have legs because its target demo is known for sort of taking its time to get to the theater. But yes, so let's talk about Fate of the Furious for a second, guys. Right now, even with the actuals that have been tallied, it is, you know, it, it, the record is, um, let's see, in 63 international markets for a record of $532 million globally, which beats The Force Awakens by $3 million bucks. So, guys, can you, let's just take a moment. Let's think about that, okay? The Force Awakens is a movie that was like a phenomenon that everyone and their fucking mother wanted to see, Right? It had years and years of hype when you really think about it, considering how large the Star Wars fandom is and how, you know, on some level, everyone was always hoping that we would get to see more movies in the Star Wars canon, you know, not the prequels, but actual continuations of the original trilogy. When you think about that and the fact that a movie like The Fate of the Furious, which is pure, just dumb, bubblegum action, um... You think about the fact that that movie beat Star Wars, and it's like Jesus Christ! Like I, to me, this like blows up the whole model of what we look at for these movies, because like, you know, Fate of the Furious has its fans. Obviously, the the series has now been around, you know, north of ten years. But it's like, it, it they actually rival Star Wars. Like I can't believe that. When you think about all the other big movies, you think about... I mean, granted, it's hard to stack it up against all the other movies because, you know, all the other blockbusters of the last five years, because like Marvel, for example, you know, they're, they're notorious for breaking up their releases. So they rarely have the movie come out everywhere at the same time. They do like a staggered release as opposed to like a simultaneous worldwide release. Um, which means that their global openings tend to be a little uh, a little softer. But, you know, it, th this thing has beat out Star Wars, has beat the Avengers, has beat Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, it beat uh, Jurassic World. You know, it beat all these things that have these installed fan bases that have been around for decades upon decades. So it just goes to show you, like, you know, you don't have to be a comic book franchise. You don't have to be attached to some beloved cartoon or property that's been around for several, you know, generations now to make a movie that's going to just blow people away. And I'm not saying it blew people away critically. I mean, it did pretty well critically, but, you know, it got an A cinema score. So people had a great time in the theater. So it looks like, you know, as long as you promise a great time in the theater, um, you know, and you deliver on that promise by making a fun, basically a roller coaster ride of a movie, you can have a movie that shatters records. It's just unbelievable to me what Fate of the Furious did. And you got to hand it, you got to hand it to, uh, to Paramount. Um, or was it Universal? I don't even know. I'm talking out of my ass right now. Uh, Fate of the Furious is a universal, so universal. You got to hand it to Universal. You know they've crafted a franchise here that just—it's—it's it's a fucking monster. It's a monster. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment on the movie itself. But I always tell people I actually get into fights defending that franchise because people love to shit on it just because it looks—you know—it looks dumb. It looks ridiculous. It's—you know—the the cars, the insane stunts, the trailers just make it look like. 
you know, basically a mindless numbskull action blockbuster experience. And I always tell people, though, that the big difference, the reason that I get behind this franchise and why I think it continues to grow is because it fully embraces what it is. It knows what it is, and it delivers on those thrills. Like I've said, sometimes a movie is a slurpee. It's pure nonsense, but on a hot summer day, a slurpee hits you right where you want it. It overloads your senses with sugar and nonsense flavoring and colors that are probably going to turn your shit purple. But you know what? It did exactly what it wanted to do, and it knew what it was. It wasn't trying to be wine. It wasn't trying to be sophisticated. It was trying to be something that just rocked your senses for a couple hours, put a smile on your face, got your blood pumping, and then sent you home happy. And Fate of the Furious, you know, in general, these Fast and Furious movies, ever since Justin Lin came on and basically rejuvenated the whole thing, um... It's just, you know, it's, it's, that's what this series is. And you can't sleep on that. You can't knock that. You know, it's very popular for like people I know to roll their eyes. Oh God, who sees these movies? But it's like, you know what? Everyone should see these movies. They're fun. You know, if you're turning your nose up at it, you, you are depriving yourself of fun. And if you don't want to see, if that's, if that's not your thing, then fine. Don't see it, but don't knock it. Because these Fast and Furious movies are fucking entertaining as hell. So I will be checking it out at some point. Um, and mind you, just a little you know, update there. Uh, there was a lot of talk about the, the, the real-life feud between Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson. And, you know, as is often the case, when you're part of something that's going to make a gajillion fucking dollars, you find a way to bury the hatchet. And now there's rumors, you know, that there's reports from TMZ... Very reliable TMZ, I know. But still, there's reports from TMZ that, that Johnson and Diesel found a way to bury the hatchet. Uh, and I'm like, big shocker there. Um, I don't really buy their reasoning for what the feud was about. Because the feud was supposedly because Johnson wanted to become the face of the franchise. I tend to doubt that. Um I think it had more to do with what Johnson said, that he felt like Diesel was acting like a prima donna on set and, you know, and being showing up late and waiting in his trailer and, and not necessarily being a great team player. I buy that reasoning much more than the idea that Johnson thought he could just hijack the series now. Uh, unless Johnson really is some egomaniac like his The Rock WWE character, which I don't think he is. He seems like a good, humble dude. Um, I just don't buy it. And they're saying that, you know, that he wanted to take over. It's just like, listen, Vin Diesel has been the face of this franchise pretty much from the beginning. Yes, he sat out on Too Fast, Too Furious, and he was only a cameo in Tokyo Drift. But come on, let's face it. When you picture the Fast and the Furious, who's the first face that comes to mind? It's Vin Diesel. So if Johnson really did come into this production, you know, this is like his third one now, if he did come into the production of Fate of the Furious thinking, you know what, I want to hijack this franchise and make it my own, then he's out of his fucking mind. And I, I just, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy that part of the report. I do buy that they buried the hatchet. So, you know, hats off to Universal. Hats off to the people behind the Fate of the Furious, which, by the way, also made like $190 million in China alone, which broke records in China. But um, 
you know, you guys, you, you, you've, you did it. You made a roller coaster ride. People are with you. And I'm sorry I doubted you. I'm sorry that I thought that the last movie only did what it did because of uh, the whole Paul Walker curiosity and the fact that he died mid-production. It looks like people just want to go see your movies regardless of anything. And with an A cinema score, you can't argue. You can't argue. People like these movies. So, you know, it's not like the Transformers. I was going to get to this earlier and I forgot. You know, it's not like that. You know, that's the difference between Fate of the Furious and something like Transformers. You know, the Transformers movies tend to take themselves seriously, too seriously. You know, it, it, it's like that, that, that for me is why I will defend this franchise over some of these other crazy blockbuster franchises. Because Fate of the Furious is in on the joke. The Fast and the Furious people, they're in on it. They know this is nonsense. They know it's preposterous. They know that it's total just, it's a cartoon of caricatures and insanity. But they embrace that, they know it, and they sort of wink at you about it. Because, you know, that's just, they are what they are. Whereas a franchise like the Transformers ones, they try way too hard to take for you to take it seriously and for you to really invest and get hook, line, and sinker into their shitty storytelling. So that, for me, is like the big difference maker. As long as you know what you are and you deliver on what you are, then you are A-OK in my book. But okay, I think I've done enough, enough on Fate of the Furious. Um, so if we're going to move on to some of the other big stories right now, you know, last night, the first reactions to Guardians of the Galaxy started to come out. There were some press screenings, and people are loving the damn movie. And I guess this shouldn't be a surprise. Remember, the, the, there were those reports a few months back from the test screenings that Guardians of the Galaxy was that rare gem that actually scored a 100% at test screenings. And now we're, you know, now we're hearing from all manner of people. I'm not going to get into specific reactions, but overall, it looks like people feel like this movie is some of the best of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has to offer. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I can't say that I'm surprised. I know people loved the first one. Uh, I know I need to rewatch the first one, not because I disliked it, just because I wasn't necessarily in the right uh, in the right state to watch it. First of all, I wasn't in the states; I was on vacation. You know, I was in Puerto Rico, and I remember when I saw it, it wasn't with my undivided attention. You know, I had just spent the whole day running around with the family and going to the beach and going shopping and spending time with other people, and I remember like. I basically, I caught like a 1030 showing in Bayamon after spending like two hours playing blackjack at a casino. And by the time I sat down to watch the movie, I was pretty tired. Um, so I think at some point, like my, 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 my attention span just totally just fell off the rails. And I just sort of like, I think I almost fell asleep at some point. And I think that's a disservice. You know, from everything I've heard about the movie and, and, and for all that I was there for, it was very entertaining. I just remember thinking, I wish it was more emotional. I wish it had more heart. And I've said this before, but, you know, for me, I loved the world building the first like half hour or so as we're getting to know everybody. Some of those earthbound sequences of the stuff they talk about with his mother and the mystery of the mixtape and who's the dad. Like, I loved all that. 
And I was hoping to be far more emotionally invested than I ended up being. For me, the movie was way too jokey. But again, I digress. I want to see it again. I'm definitely going to see Volume 2. And the early response on Volume 2 is very, very positive. Of course, there are some people who weren't that thrilled. But, you know, you're going to get that in any movie. This one looks like it's going to be another, you know, uh, resounding success. And if we think about it, you know, with one of my recurring, with one of my recurring critiques about the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, I think Guardians and the and the fact that uh, it's set up in the cosmos and it's sort of separate of the Earthbound adventures, I think that frees up James Gunn in ways that are truly beautiful in ways that give him a lot of creative license to just go wherever he wants, explore different corners of the of the MCU, and, and tonally just make his own thing from scratch. I think the fact that it's not tied to, you know, the, not necessarily 100% linked at the hip to the Avengers universe is great. Um, and I guess I'm just, I'm not surprised to hear how refreshing and how different this movie is. And I think that that's something that is slowly beginning to hamstring the rest of the MCU. Because everything, all of their earthbound tales are so interspliced and interconnected that you are bound to compare them, you are bound to dissect them, you are bound to find plot holes or ask questions and, and, and things that are going to bog down your viewing experience. Whereas the Guardians are so far removed from everything that you just kind of watch it as its own thing. So, you know, that's just something to keep an eye on. I, I wonder how the creative heads at the MCU are going to, you know, continue with their storytelling moving forward. Because I really do think the Earthbound stuff is starting to get a little stale. Uh, that's just me. And I know that it's, you know, it's an unpopular opinion. Most people love the MCU. I enjoy it. But I think creatively, it's sort of uh, just not very much, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised by very much that happens in the MCU. Um, so in terms of just some other news on the Guardians front, there's this word that it's going to have five post-credit sequences. From what I'm told, though, that's actually a bit of like clickbait because... You know, he, you know, even James, I know James Gunn said that it actually has five, but really it's, it's from what I've read, it's like just these little tiny snippets that happen throughout the credits and it's not these like full fledged, you know, when you think about an MCU post credit sequence, you think about those first ones, which really worked very hard to connect it to upcoming movies and to connect it to movies that had come before it. And that were really sort of like novel in the way that they did the, in the way they expanded the MCU's canvas. From what I gather, these five quote-unquote post-credit sequences and, and Guardians are not necessarily like that. They're more just like, you know, James Gunn just kind of added a few funny little tags here. That's just what, that's what I'm hearing and all these headlines you're seeing out there about how there's not one, not two, not three, but four, but five. Uh, they're just trying to get your clicks and they're trying to get your attention, but no. Um, but okay. And, and also, did you guys hear? It's official now. Despite the fact that in the middle of last year, James Gunn said he was not sure he would be making volume three and that he fully expected there to be a third Garli Guardians movie. 
but just not that he would be the one at the helm. Um, now he's come out and officially said that he will be making a volume three, and it looks like that will be part of Marvel's phase four of films. So you know what? Fuck yes. Uh, even for me, who's not a huge fan of the Guardians thus far, I'm happy that a filmmaker like James Gunn is sticking around, and I'm glad he's going to get to continue telling his Guardian story and that he's agreed to do it. Because um, between him and Taika Waititi, I think they're going to come up with some of the most creative use of the Marvel canon that you're going to find anywhere. Um, especially if he's allowed to keep making the Guardians movie sort of a separate sort of offshoot thing. So that is official. James Gunn will be back for Guardians 3. And now, a little bit of rumor, bochinche, theory, speculation, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But I've got a little birdie that tells me that due to something that occurs in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which I will not spoil for you, there is perhaps a very serious possibility that Marvel and Fox have made a deal for the Fantastic Four. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it, and it may not be for the actual proper Fantastic Four, but it may be for one huge part of the Fantastic Four galaxy. And I think you know where I'm going with this. A lot of you have wondered where are they going to go after Thanos? What are they going to do? Who's the next huge villain in the MCU? And it looks like there's a possibility, and this isn't a spoiler, this is speculation, but there's a possibility that because of something that is in Volume 2, we might be working our way towards Galactus. Okay? You heard it here first, folks. There's something that happens in Guardians 2 that's got us all wondering if Galactus is on deck. And if Galactus is on deck, does that mean Silver Surfer is on deck? Does that mean the Fantastic Four will be entering the MCU? I do not know. All I know is I heard from someone that I trust that a potential doorway is opened in Volume 2 that will lead us towards Galactus, which could mean that Fox and Marvel have struck up some sort of deal for the rights of the Fantastic Four universe crossing into the MCU and being handled by Kevin Feige and company. All right, folks? I don't know. We'll talk about it further once the movie comes out and we can really dissect it. But I heard this literally moments before the podcast began. And I just had to share that with you. There will be more details on this at splashreport.com in a report that I'll be working on that'll probably go up tomorrow. Okay? But just put that in your pipes and smoke it. Now, Moving right along, everyone, we're going to talk about something that's been an ongoing story for a very long time now that finally got some resolution. The casting of Cable in Deadpool 2, and presumably for the X-Force. We finally found out, after months and months and months of hearing all kinds of things, I mean, who did we hear? We heard, you know, lots of guys were throwing their names into the hat, like Stephen Lang and Ron Perlman. Uh, there were people talking about Dolph Lundgren. There was rumors about everyone from Russell Crowe to Pierce Brosnan to, uh, who was the latest one? I fucking, there was even talk Brad Pitt might get tapped for it. Well, now we know unequivocally 
who Cable will be played by, and it is none other than Mr. Josh Brolin. How fucking crazy is that? Uh, Josh Brolin, who's already playing Thanos in the MCU, by the way, is now going to be part of the XCU as Cable. Um, you know, I, I, like, I'm, I'm of two minds here because I'm like, shit. You know, why, why did they have to get a guy who's already playing, you know, a a a marquee character in the MCU? Are, aren't there more actors in the world? You know, so there, there's a part of me that's like. Really? You know, we have to double dip. There wasn't somebody who's already attached at the hip to another franchise that they could have hired for this. But um, but aside from that, if I can get over that, that's just stupid fucking fanboy nitpicking on my part. Uh, Josh Brolin's a great actor. And I guess, you know, I, I, I'm guessing that the reason they did this is because his chemistry with Reynolds is really good. And uh, Cable and Deadpool are going to have a really good, you know, rapport or a really good, you know, just on-screen thing going on. So, folks, that's finally, you know, uh, Josh Brolin is entering the X-Men Cinematic Universe as Cable. Uh, Rob Liefeld could not be more excited about it. He already released, like, a sketch of, of how he would draw Cable with Brolin's likeness. Um, and, yeah, like I said, I just, I, 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 I have a little bit of trouble with it. Because, you know, he's already known as a comic book character. And especially with uh, Infinity War coming out, these next two years is going to be all about him looking like, um, you know, with him as an, as an MCU villain. To, so to suddenly now start seeing teasers for him as Cable is going to be, you know, I just, I, I, I always feel like there's so many actors in the world. Why do we have to cannibalize? Um, and mind you, also, Brolin's pretty short. And I, I never pictured Cable as a shorty. I'm sure they could, you know, they'll film it in ways that are strategic and interesting. And, you know, but Brolin, you know, I worked on a movie. I worked a day or two on Wall, um, what is it, uh, Wall Street 2. And I'm like, wow, this guy's pretty short. I remember thinking that even when he was up for Batman. Because remember, he was almost Batman in, uh, in the DCEU. And, you know, this is a guy who's like, you know, Five eight, five nine. That's not what I picture for Cable, typically speaking. But yes. So anyway, uh, Brolin is Cable. Uh, just a little tiny thing, by the way. A little tiny detour, if you'll allow me for like thirty-five seconds to talk about WWE. There was a wrestler who just died. Everyone, uh, anyone who watched who watches wrestling or used to watch it back in the day, uh, there used to be a tag team called the uh, the Two Minute Warning. Uh, where there was, you know, uh, Rosie and his partner, uh, who was Eddie Fatu. I forget what it, what Eddie used to call himself back then. But they were the two-minute warning. They were there for, like, the Eric Bischoff era on Monday Night Raw when he was the GM, and they would come out and, and attack uh, whoever Bischoff sort of set, you know, set them on. And then, you know, eventually he went on to be, like, a tag teamer with, uh, like, with the superhero gimmick with, with, with Helms. Uh, well, anyway, Rosie has passed on. And so did his brother, who played, uh, who also went on to play Umaga. So they're both dead, guys. Both uh, both members of the two-minute warning uh, are gone. Uh, he was only 47 years old. So my condolences to the uh, Anoi family, the, uh, that, that Samoan family that has given the wrestling world so many stars. Um, 
you know, he's he, they, they just lost another one. It's crazy, man. Just crazy. But um, And also in the world of wrestling, you know, for those of you who are excited about the Hardy Boys being back and who followed them when they were not with the WWE, you'll know that in the last year or so, they had a lot of success, especially Matt Hardy in particular, had a lot of success with that broken gimmick, with the total deletion, and all that other banana shit he was working on with TNA and even at ROH and whatever. Um, it looks like WWE is currently trying to negotiate with uh, the people over at TNA to get the, uh, the, the the broken gimmick. Right now, TNA claims to own that character own that 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 you know that whole Matt Hardy angle and it looks like WWE is trying to negotiate according to Dave Meltzer who's a pretty reliable source over there at the Wrestling Observer so hey you know for those of you fans out there wrestling fans who were wondering if Matt Hardy was ever going to get to explore all that broken stuff and all that deletion stuff you know it looks like it may happen at least WWE is trying to make it happen but, um, all right, so now we're going to wrap things up today talking Star Wars. So this was a huge deal, obviously. Last week, we finally got to lay eyes on Star Wars The Last Jedi via the first trailer, which debuted as part of Star Wars Celebration. Um, so first, my thoughts on the trailer itself. Uh, I really loved it. You know, it didn't give me, like, the insane amount of goosebumps I got watching the first, you know, like, the Force Awakens teaser. Because when I saw the Force Awakens teaser, you know, there's nothing that can compare to that. Because, you know, that was, like, the first time we got to see anything that's a continuation of the original trilogy. And that looked and felt like it belonged in that universe. Um, so this didn't necessarily come close to the just total, oh my god, I just had a religious experience of the Force Awakens teaser, but I still, I still really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, getting to hear Luke's voice for me was just like a religious experience. Yes, we have heard Mark Hamill speak, and he, we hear his voice all the time. He's the fucking Joker. He's everywhere. But getting to hear him as Luke speak again for me just sent shivers down my spine. Um, you know, I, I grew up on Star Wars. And Luke Skywalker was a huge, huge character for me. And getting to hear Mark Hamill once and for all speak as him and realize the realization that I'm going to get to see Luke in this next movie uh, and see where he is now and see where, sorry, see where this creative team is taking him. I mean, that's just, I cannot fucking wait. Um, that said... You know, the teaser didn't give us a hell of a lot to work with uh, in terms of, like, the plot of the movie, which I'm glad. I'm glad that the Star Wars movies, at least for these proper uh, episodes, tend to try to keep the plot details very light because they know they don't have to go there. They know all we have to do is show you some very iconic images, uh, play some John Williams score for you, and just give you some mild little hints at where we're going, and you're going to be there. Uh, we don't have to give you the whole goddamn movie. So I like that about the Star Wars promotion so far. Um, so I'm kind of glad we don't know a hell of a lot about it. But, you know, so now let, let, let's talk a little bit about what is in it and some of what my some of my speculation on what we saw in there. So um, 
I'm trying to think. The, the, the first thing that came to mind, just by the way, I, when I was looking at it, uh, did you guys catch that it looks like we're going to get to see the full flashback the of that sequence that was cut from The Force Awakens where uh, Luke is kneeling next to R2-D2 and he puts the robot hand on R2's uh, head? Uh, looks like if, if you look at the episode eight teaser, you're going to see that he actually, we're going to see where he's like, like, like the, the shot that presumably precedes that where he's standing right beside R2D2 as some crazy shit is happening. And it looks like we're going to get to finally see that whole flashback sequence where, where maybe where Kylo Ren goes crazy and the Knights of Ren take over and Luke goes into hiding. We're going to finally learn all about that stuff that was only teased about in the force awakens we're going to get to really enjoy but um so the big thing that i want to talk about right now is that line at the end where it you know he talks about it's time for the jedi to end um people have been you know, running off with theories about that and i want to let you know what i think that's all about and right off the bat i think a lot of you are way off uh, I've been reading on in comment sections and on Twitter and whatever that you think that that's Benicio del Toro uh, saying that line, and no, it's fucking not. It's just not. <laughs> um, like, like okay, that is Luke's voice. First of all, we've just been listening to Luke's voice throughout much of the teaser, so you should be able to recognize it just using your own goddamn ears. But if you look, that's clearly Luke standing in the doorway. And you can see his mouth moving along with the words the, uh, to end at the end of the phrase. You know, it's time for the Jedi to end. You see his jaw move to, to end. It's him. That's absolutely him. So these people who are trying to tell you that it's not Luke's voice, that it's Benicio's voice. No, you're fucking wrong. I'm sorry to break that to you. But that is Luke saying that. Now, uh, where do I think that scene takes place? I think that scene takes place actually you know, early on in the film. During a period, perhaps, where where Ray is trying to convince him to train her, and he's you know he's reluctant to do so, and he's saying you know he's basically saying, I don't want to train you to be a Jedi because I think the Jedi need to end. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are reasons that we'll discover later on. We'll learn that that Luke has been in hiding and that he no longer wants to continue the Jedi legacy, and you know Ray's going to have to overcome that uh, if you know if if she's going to convince him to try to train her. Um, you know, so I, I think we're going to learn that he thinks that their time is over and that there's a completely different way to achieve the balance in the force than what has been discussed in these previous uh, seven Star Wars movies. And I think, you know, this is where things get interesting for me in terms of speculation. I think Luke, in all of his hiding and all of his, you know, going away and being Mr. Private Monk guy, um... I think he's learning that it's that the the true way to find balance is not by becoming either a Jedi or a Sith, but rather by being somewhere in the middle, which is where the you know the, the theories now about the Journal of the Wills comes into play. The idea of the Gray Jedi, um, you know, I think the Skywalker plot and what he instills in Rey is the idea that all this time we've been trying to be light or dark when the real secret is being able to use our darkness, our anger, our hate, our fear for the greater good, thus being gray instead of black or white. 
Dealing in absolutes means one side will always be seduced by the other. It's human nature. Whereas if we find that balance within ourselves, that's where true peace comes from. That's what I think. I think we're going to discover that Luke, who's always kind of had a slight pull towards the dark, has learned in all these years that everyone had it wrong. Everyone spoke about this balance and the force and either being a good guy or a bad guy. And he's learning that the real sweet spot, the real thing that we all must be striving for is to really be somewhere in the middle. And so we're going to see a Luke who at times is somewhat dark and somewhat sort of almost villainous seeming. But it's because he's learned after, you know, he learned what all of his masters before him didn't quite grasp. You cannot be just one or the other. We are all shades of gray. And it's kind of like a metaphor in real life. We are all shades of gray. Nobody is completely a saint or completely a piece of shit. We're all somewhere in the middle. And I think that's the story they're going to tell. Obviously, in very mythological, crazy, you know, sci-fi adventure sort of storytelling, you know, they're going to take that complex psychological idea and explore it in, in Star Wars ways. But I think that's going to be Luke's ultimate sort of, of, of arc here, that he has learned that there really is no such thing as the light or the darkness, that everyone's had it wrong, and that you have to be somewhere in the middle. And it's about you know fi- following your heart and not fighting the darkness inside you, but actually using it, channeling it to do what's right, to do what's good. And I think... You know, Ray and Ben, or, this, uh, or you know, Kylo Ren, if you want to call him that. I think Ray and Ben are going to be two gray characters: one that leans light, one that leans dark, and that's going to be where the true balance lies in this. In 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 at the end of this little uh, saga we've been watching here. So, um, you know, Last Jedi comes out this Christmas. I cannot fucking wait. Uh, the trailer I thought was very well done. Well, you know, a little scarce on the details, but you know what? I, I don't blame them for it. Um, and then aside from that, you know, in terms of Star Wars stuff, you know, Star Wars Celebration happened. Uh, we learned that Star Wars Rebels is going to be ending uh, after season four, that this is it, that this next season will be the finale. So my condolences to Star Wars Rebels fans everywhere. Uh, it's coming to an end, y'all. Uh, for me, one of the big surprises, though, was that there weren't more movies announced, which I guess is good. It means that they're really trying to figure shit out. But, you know, we didn't leave this with any sort of announcement of other anthology films, other standalone Star Wars stories. I totally thought we were. Uh, remember, there was all that talk that in January, uh, Lucasfilm was going to convene and they were going to figure out after Rogue One what they were going to do. Were they going to continue with episodic movies after episode nine comes out or are they going to just start doing the standalone star Wars stories movies every year? And there was really no clarity offered about that at star Wars celebration. They didn't announce an episode uh, 10, 11 or 12, like a new trilogy. They didn't announce anything that wasn't uh, already announced like star Wars, you know, the, the Han Solo one. So I, to me, that was a big surprise. I thought for the 40th anniversary Star Wars you know, thing that they were doing, that we were going to find out more about the future of the franchise. They didn't really go there. Um, 
And yeah, so I guess, you know, and the other only other sort of like newsworthy bit that I feel like touching on was, you know, I know a bunch of you were concerned uh, when Bob Iger made it seem like maybe Han Solo is not Han Solo's name. Uh, but Kathleen Kennedy says we might be misunderstanding that. So, you know, she came out during Star Wars Celebration to sort of clarify that Han Solo is indeed Han Solo. Uh, although, honestly, I wouldn't have minded finding out that that's an alias. You know, wouldn't it kind of add to the whole sort of the charm of the character, the smuggler, the con man, the, the, the criminal from the underworld, that maybe Han Solo was an alias that just stuck, that his real name is something else, but through his dealings, he ended up having to come up with another moniker, and Han Solo is not his name, you know, his birth name. I wouldn't have minded that. But Kathleen Kennedy says that that is his name. Uh, at least she seemed to indicate that. But uh, guys, that's the end of this week's show. Uh, I'm going to try something a little different now. Instead of asking you a question of the week, here's what I want to do. I want you to ask me a question for next week's show. Uh, I think that'll be much more interesting. I would love to just sound off on anything you ask me to sound off on. So please tweet out with hashtag LFanboy uh, any question or topic you definitely want me to speak about next week. Um, and maybe that means you want to hold off a little bit. Maybe that means you want to tweet it out on Monday to see if any stories come out this week that, that you want me to speak on. But either way, uh, whenever, whenever you do send them in, please send in questions and or topics for me. Also, just an update on the show itself on El, on El Fanboy. Uh, I, starting next week, I've got some ideas for how I'm going to be tweaking the format, uh, even if it's just upping the production level. So this might be one of the last episodes that is in this format. Uh, I'm mulling it over, but I'm just I'm trying to take this to, to some new places here. So bear with me as, a, as my creativity might get the better of me, but I'm, I'm trying new shit, and uh, I have a feeling next week's show is going to be a little different. So be ready for that, y'all. Uh, that's it, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Feel free to please do like and subscribe and leave me more reviews. Uh, right now I've got 10 reviews in. Uh, I've got five stars on iTunes. It's all beautiful. Keep them coming, folks. This is uh, how we're going to help grow this thing. All right? Thank you, and uh, we'll talk more next week. Adios.